Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Dr. Candice Myrie, international surf doctor, also known as Dr. Bikini. I had a smile on my face the whole time I was chatting with Dr. Myrie, and she includes such honesty and self-awareness and vulnerability in our conversation. In this episode, we discuss her ER career, starting in LA, and how she ultimately transitioned to being an ER doctor in Hawaii, and all of the hardships along the way. Dr. Myrie also shares how she got the nickname Dr. Bikini, and why embracing that name will help her in her fight to end sexism in the medical profession. It's clear she's very passionate about saving lives, but she's also about living a very balanced life for herself, which ultimately makes her a better doctor for others. You'll hear one of her favorite words is mermazing, and I have to say it was an absolute treat to interview her. Please enjoy this episode with the mermazing Dr. Candace Myrie. Hi, Candace. Welcome to the show. Hi again. So nice to see you in person. So nice to see you. And hopefully one day I could visit you in person in Hawaii. I guess to start the show, I mean, the people listening would have heard your background and know that you are an emergency room doctor and also known as the international surf doctor in Hawaii. But we both grew up in California and a lot of my listeners love hearing background stories. So if you could share with our listeners where you grew up, that'd be great. Well, my father was still in training as a cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon when I was very young. So we traveled quite a bit for his residency training. And then we finally planted roots in Palos Verdes, California. So there was a lot of struggle before I remember. And when I basically sort of understood where we were living, we were living in a beautiful area in Palos Verdes, California. And I was attending a private school up there and just had a very lovely, privileged childhood, I have to say. And it was very different from what my parents grew up with. They both grew up very poor, struggling. My father was born to missionary parents in Africa and then in Norway originally is where his heritage is from. And then my mom grew up as a very poor Russian Jew coming from immigrant parents as well who traveled quite a bit. So I came from impoverished background, but then my father had made it by the time that I really knew what was going on. And he was a successful heart surgeon and I was fortunate to have an excellent education. So that was amazing. But I remember sitting outside my house looking across Los Angeles from this gorgeous backyard and thinking, I'm never going to be able to work hard enough to obtain this. So that's sort of where my mindset started as a child and privileged background, really. Well, meanwhile, now you're surrounding yourself with the beauty of Hawaii, which is not too shabby. But I know that for college, you were accepted to many colleges. How did you pick the one you ultimately went to? Yes, I don't tend to just choose one place to go. I actually just, whenever I do anything, I sort of spread out everywhere. And so I had applied to multiple colleges. But my sister Angel had gone to Scripps College, a women's college. And I thought that was an amazing idea because I had noticed the gender discrimination in high school 
and really didn't want to have to deal with men are going to have more money for their sports or I'm going to have to deal with sexism from teachers or any type of inappropriate behavior, which I had seen and fortunately experienced a little bit in high school. And so I chose to go to Wellesley College because I really just wanted to surround myself with amazing, brilliant women and professors who were their whole reason for being there was to make amazing female leaders. And that's who I wanted to be and what I wanted to surround myself with and play soccer and have that kind of collegiality with other women. That's how I made my ultimate decision to go to Wellesley. Great. And did you know then that you wanted to be a doctor right away? Absolutely not. (laughs) I really enjoyed science and marine mammal studies. I love dolphins. I actually secretly wanted to be a dolphin trainer because in Palos Verdes, we had marine land. I literally was applying for a job to be a dolphin trainer there, which is completely not in vogue now. So it's probably good that it's turned out it's very inappropriate to keep a large marine mammal in a small tank. So I probably would have delved into the outer world of the ocean. But so I really loved the outdoors, the earth, being out in the ocean. My parents sort of sat me down. I remember as a junior in high school and thought, as parents always do, I think, how are you going to provide for yourself as a woman? As You have to be able to make enough money. You're never going to make enough money from a grant for a marine mammal biologist. So I thought, well, I really love medicine. I love women's health. I'm interested in pursuing that. So sorry, that was my junior year in college is when I was deciding what to do with my life. Unfortunately, I was a double major psychobiology and women's studies, and I wasn't really prepared to go to medical school at that point. So after I finished college, I came back home and sort of made sure that that was exactly what I wanted to do for four years living with my parents. (laughs) And so what next? Well, after living with them and taking some pre-med courses and watching my dad's lifestyle a little bit more, I finally decided this is something I wanted to do. I never really saw him as a child growing up. He was 24-7 available to everyone. He had a private practice. So really, my mom was around a lot more. And But the times I had with him, whether it was in the hospital or at home, I really appreciated his profession, what he was able to do for people, the lives he was able to save. And that really pushed me to pursue medicine. However, I didn't want to be a surgeon necessarily because to be a surgeon, you literally have to think that is the most amazing, most important thing in the world. And that's what you want to do every second of the day. And I wasn't there. I have a much more well-rounded existence and have other interests and desires to do besides practice medicine. So as much as it almost kept me from going into medicine, I was able to find my niche, fortunately. And so did you know that niche would be ER medicine right away or? I actually didn't. I went into medical school with an open mind, looking at the different specialties, whether it was pediatrics or OB-GYN. But as I went through every specialty, I always found something that was wrong with it. For instance, dermatology. I didn't like that you were just in a room deep away in an office somewhere looking at skin every day. And it was really just, it seemed like there was just three medicines you could give people. And I wanted to be in the heart of the action. I loved, when I was in medical school, I went to USC or Keck School of Medicine, and we would go to LA County, USC, into the ER. And I just thought, this is the most exciting place to be in the world. We're saving lives here. You never know what accident or medical emergency is going to enter the ER and you have to come up with a huge differential diagnosis of all the possibilities. And then much like a mystery novel, figure out with all your clues what diagnosis is to save their life. And it's a race against time, really. So I just thought that was amazing to be the expert in every specialty and be able to really save someone's life and not save them if you couldn't figure it out also. 
I mean, talk about nerves of steel, because in that moment, you have to triage so instantly. But I also know that it's part psychology and therapy, because in that moment, you have to get so much information so quickly. And so one part that you had mentioned in our prior conversation that I thought was so fascinating is you mentioned that you could instantly tap into someone quickly and get information from them. How do you do that so quickly in the ER? I've started using this expression, the chameleon chef. And what I mean by that is I've realized over the years, and of course, I wasn't very good at this at first. I had no idea what people expected of me when I was in the room, when I first was a student and even as a resident. But now I've learned people really want you to mirror their emotions. If they're sad, they want you to be sad. If they're angry, they want you to be angry. Of course, you can't go 100% with them, but you can be a chameleon and change your mood to their mood when you're in the room because they want someone to be empathetic. And then the chef part came from there's multiple people you're taking care of. So you're basically trying to keep multiple pots from boiling over. One emergency doctor actually asked me before I went into ER if I thought I'd make a good chef, and that's how I'd know if I would be a good ER doctor. So that's the term chameleon chef because every time you have to go into the next room, you have to change your mood. And the other part of it was you had to clear your palate each time because you couldn't come out of a room slightly angry and go into a room where a kid's crying. So you have to clear your palate. And I joke that I clear my palate with laughter and that laughter is my sorbet. And I'll joke with the nurses in between going to rooms or make funny comments or make a funny face or just something like we have a lively good time in the ER, which sometimes patients find irritating. But honestly, laughter is just a huge relief. They've shown that it relaxes your body for 45 minutes after you laugh and has all sorts of actual physical effects on your body that help me in my practice. So I also try to make kids laugh because they're scared. So if you can make a fart joke while you're suturing someone up, then you are golden. <laughs> Eight-year-olds eat that up. So Oh, and four and seven-year-olds, which I have at home. And yesterday, my husband, for half an hour, literally just, that was the focus of just fart jokes. And they were in stitches. So... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I do. I make inappropriate, appropriate jokes for age groups and they love it. And oftentimes people make the jokes themselves and they have horrible accidents, but they find a way to make it funny and we make sure it's not too soon to start laughing about their horrible injury. But I think that really helps relax them and the experience isn't so horrible because they're there because they're having the worst day of their life and I'm there to make it a little bit better. I enjoy that. I always enjoyed those kind of shows and movies where there was a happy ending or you kind of like a little house in the prairie fanatic. Oh my gosh, I just dated myself. <laughs> so going back to your school, where did you go to residency and what did you do after that? I went to LA County USC for residency. So I was right there at Keck School of Medicine. And then I love the ER program. The attendings there were absolutely phenomenal. It was one of the biggest trauma centers in the country. And I decided that that's where I wanted to be. So unfortunately, they didn't have an internship. So I went to Fresno for one year and did a transitional internship. But that was amazing because we actually rotated through the burns unit and we did dermatology we did the cardiac unit and it was really a funny year for me because every time I went to a different rotation something happened to me within that rotation so when I was studying cardiology and I was in the ER taking care of a heart attack patient I found out that the nurse was dating my boyfriend who was standing behind me and then when I was in ortho rotation I got a horrible hip injury from having or poor in residency I had old tennis shoes and I was running uneven. So I could barely walk at the end of that month at ortho. So it was kind of like a year of calamities where I was scared to enter the next rotation because I didn't know what was going to happen to me relating to that specialty of the next rotation. But then after that, I came back to LA County and just had a phenomenal training. It was basically a time of heavy gang wars. And unfortunately, of course, but there was a lot of gunshots, stabbings, 
the Navy was training at our hospital. And then we just saw all these fascinating cases from across the border, from Mexico, from people flying in through LAX. And we served an underprivileged population, socioeconomically poor and heavily Spanish speaking. So I was able to use my fluent Spanish. So it was an incredible place to be. And I was surrounded by the brilliant minds of emergency sex medicine, Stuart Squadron, Billy Mallon, and a lot of Dr. England, a lot of female professors as well that really had started in medicine before there were any, there were very few women and they were the pioneers of emergency medicine. So it was great to be surrounded by them. That's wonderful. So then you spent all that time in LA, but here you are in Hawaii. How did that transition? I loved Los Angeles for many years. It's so interesting ethnically, culturally. You have all the resources, but I'm really tired of the city life. And there's a reason we all go into medicine. We want to care for other people, but we also want to feel appreciated and as if we're doing important work. And we need that to survive. So when I was working in a community hospital in Los Angeles, I stopped feeling that feeling that people were thankful that I was helping them. There was much more FUs than thank yous, but I wanted to go back to being a community, being like a doctor could medicine doctor where the community knows who I am. I'll find out what happened to you at Costco when I see you. If I don't already know, I can give you my phone number. I was able to take a homeless man's dog home while he had a stroke and was in the hospital and met him four days later and gave him back his dog after he'd recovered. Like you just cannot take a homeless man's dog home in Los Angeles. Like I craved human connection and all I was getting in Los Angeles towards the end of my career was really being treated like a waitress. People wanted me to see patients faster. I was being verbally abused. I was actually physically abused. I had my finger broken by a patient in the ER. I felt endangered when I'd walk through the hallway. There was a lot of homeless people and psychotic people in the hallways, and I didn't feel safe walking in the doors to work. And just the colleagues that I'd called to help patients weren't that interested. But I found, I started doing locums in Hawaii and found that the aloha here and the whole ohana family was really strong. And consultants were happy when you called them to take care of their patients. And patients were thankful. And there was much more mahalos, which means thank you in Hawaii. And I really thrived on that. I kind of need that. I think we all need that. But my personality, I especially do. So I just dabbled in locums and traveling, which means traveling to other Hawaiian islands to figure out where my fit was. And when I came to Kauai, I was like Goldilocks in Three Bears. And I was like, this is my island. These are my people. It's small enough that you can kind of get to know so many people. There's 70,000 people here. It's a garden state. You're just surrounded by green beauty and not cement, which was important to me. My husband was like, would you rather go through the LA tunnel to work or the tree tunnel? And I was like, definitely <laughs> tree tunnel. So that's amazing. yeah, that's how I made the transition. That's amazing. Well, I know that you love traveling and you volunteered as a surf doctor around the world. Can you talk about that a little bit before we get more into your Hawaiian practice? Absolutely. I was a burnt out third year resident and I took a trip to Mexico with the surf divas and learned to surf and do yoga because I really wasn't taking care of myself. I was basically just working all the time and I really needed something to fill my soul and that filled my soul. And I was able to take that through residency and just randomly met someone at an urgent care who invited me on their surf trip. And I barely knew how to surf and I became their doctor for the week. And then I started looking around for other opportunities in other islands, the Mentui Islands and Gland in Indonesia, and was able to go there for a week or longer and take care of patients and surf and 
feed my soul, practice emergency medicine. I just really, I love the travel experience. And actually to USC is amazing program. We also went to Ghana and we went to Bhutan and we practiced emergency medicine and taught physicians how to practice emergency medicine because it's a very young specialty. So I had the travel bug with that experience at USC and then just continued where I wanted to work in underdeveloped countries. And when I go to Fiji and work as a surf doctor, I also help with the local Fijians with their illnesses. It's the perfect job for me, really. Being outdoors, taking care of patients and taking care of myself. It fits all my needs. <laughs> I love that. Well, so you're known as the international surf doctor, but you're also known as Dr. Bikini. Can you share how that label came about? Yes, that was completely accidental. I actually fought against that role for a long time. I was surfing out in the middle of the ocean when a woman was hit by a boat and she was snorkeling. And I was happened to be surfing at the same time, paddled over to her and basically took control of the emergency and put her on a long board and up into the boat and then to the island where I resuscitated her in the urgent care and then flew her to an underdeveloped hospital took care of her all overnight. She had multiple injuries. She fractured her collarbone, her humerus, her scapula. She had an open femur fracture. She had multiple rib fractures and blood and air in her chest. And then I had to put a chest tube in her and put her in a plane and fly her to Australia. And I did it all by myself. <laughs> so it was as a physician. There was other people obviously helping to coordinate and take care of her, but it just basically was a pinnacle of my career when I was a one woman show and felt I can take care of this person all alone. I don't need any other medical help really. And that was an amazing moment for me, but a harrowing moment, of course, because you're taking care of someone's life and that's always the most important task. So that's how I became, I guess, a global hero was <laughs> people use that term. I didn't make that up. And I shared the story actually through a show called Untold Stories of the ER, which I was very hesitant to do reenacted this story and made it a man instead of a woman to protect her identity. And then we filmed it in Vancouver. That's where they filmed the show. And there was pictures from the series. And I never shared it with anyone in the ER. We filmed it in 2013 because I was a little embarrassed here. They kept me in my bikini the whole show. And there's these pictures of me saving a life in a bikini. And I didn't want them to start calling me Dr. Bikini at work. I thought it would undercut my professionalism. So the only reason it came out was just this year, the pictures, that is. And the reason that it came out is because there was a study in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, which followed 460 vascular surgeons, residents actually, and looked at their social media accounts to see what they were posting. And they made categories on what was unprofessional, what was professional behavior. And they deemed unprofessional behavior as wearing bikinis and Halloween costumes and drinking alcohol on their social media costumes. The problem with the study, it was biased because they found that men doing the same activities were professional and they weren't deemed unprofessional. So as you can imagine, when this article hits a very reputable journal that all the females get extremely unhappy with this gender bias study and it went viral. So on July 24th, my friends had been posting about it and I thought, well, I'm not really big into posting yet. I have an account for my daughter, but it's basically private. And then I had opened up this Dr. Candy survival Instagram account with just 300 followers thinking, maybe I'll start posting about my life as a doctor and a surf doctor. And my friends will find it interesting. Maybe some other people find it interesting. I had maybe 300 followers. It wasn't a big deal. 
So I thought, okay, I'm going to post this picture of me from Untold Stories of the ER in a bikini, saving a man's life in solidarity against this article because why do we still have sexism in medicine when 50% of really healthcare workers are female at this point? I didn't really think much. I went to work at the ER on Kauai and my phone just went crazy and it was this is, this is all these little notifications you get from Instagram that I wasn't even didn't even know what they were at first because I barely get any. And then by day one, when I came home from work, I had 10,000 followers and this many likes. And then the day two was 20,000, day three was 30,000. And then at the end of it, there was 260,000 likes for this photo of me in a bikini saving someone's life. And I thought, I have very little chance of someone not calling me Dr. Bikini in the ER anymore. <laughs> it's over for sure. That was seven years ago when you first did it versus now. How do you feel about your colleagues and your patients just knowing you as Dr. Bikini? How does that feel now? I think it feels, my favorite word is mermazing. I think it feels mermazing because really Dr. Bikini has transformed. I think looking at a woman in a bikini and with an image of a doctor with a white coat and a bikini was not viewed with a positive image just basically who is this girl in a bikini is she gonna be able to take care of me I mean even most of my career when I walked into a room and they saw I was a woman people are thinking who is this young woman who's gonna take care of me what does she know she doesn't look like the doctor that I think that I was gonna see maybe a gray-haired man in a coat so I was already fighting that image for most of my career so I thought it would be a problem but really I feel like we took back the word Dr. Bikini. (laughs) I feel like it means a powerful woman who can save your life in the middle of the ocean. And it's a positive image. And I'm a board certified emergency doctor. I have nothing to be ashamed of that I save lives of people in a bikini. And I'm embracing Dr. Bikini at this point. There's no reason not to. I love that. And you've started a whole trend now of the medical community. I've seen the hashtag med bikini and so many doctors and nurses have just done that as saying, you know what, I'm a confident medical professional. And if I'm having fun on a Sunday in a bikini, that's okay. That doesn't make me unprofessional. So I love this movement that you started. Right. It's great. And you should actually feel safer if we're standing around there. (laughs) We should probably get Dr. Bikini on all of our bikinis so you can identify who to go for if you're in a jam at the beach. So I think, and the great thing about it was, it's so important, I think, with women's movements. I went to Wellesley College so I can identify with all the women's studies movements. It's really important to get men involved because in this day and age, men also want women to really thrive and be seen as professionals and respected and to have careers. And so I started reaching out to all my male colleagues on Kauai and saying, hey, do you think you'd mind putting on a Speedo and then having me post a picture of you in your white coat and then your Speedo just in solidarity for the cause to just make the playing field even? And look, all these amazing doctors are wearing bikinis and Speedos, mankinis, medkinis. We can save your life. This is who we are. We have professional lives and we have personal lives and they're both professional. So they all did it. It was amazing because they were all just like right on, like hashtag med bikini, let's do this thing. So that was a beautiful moment of solidarity where everyone came together to really help an important cause of canceling sexism in 2020, which is basically my goal and my passion at this point. And has always been, I've just been a little quieter about it. <laughs> so how long have you been in Hawaii now? Two years. Would you say that the couple of years that you've been in Hawaii is your medical 
profession, is it completely fulfilling just by removing the zip code of LA? I have to say yes. I'm happy being a physician again. I love my job again. I really do. The patients are amazing. They are really kind. They're thankful. There's a sense of community here that everyone's your Ohana. I feel loved by the community. I love them back. I give them my phone number. They text me pictures of them after I suture them to see how they're doing. I've seen one man I've saved his life twice and I ran into him in Costco and I happened to be with my stepdaughter who's 20 and he said, I just want you to know that your mom saved my life twice. And that was just a beautiful moment. Like you just don't, you'd never see that in LA. And then just, I see the homeless guy who's, <laughs> I saw him yesterday. We took this homeless man's dog home while he was in the hospital for four days. And he was so happy that I brought him back. He was aphasic. He couldn't talk. So I had to write down to him what I was going to do. And I just saw him yesterday and his dog looked great. He looked great. And so we're going to go visit him from time to time. So it's just, I mean, there's just beautiful people here, beautiful stories. And we also get a lot of tourists here. So I have the opportunity to take care of people from all over the world. I've actually, <laughs> I seem to be always in the right place, unfortunately, unfortunately. But I've helped people who've passed out on hikes, waterfalls, and my husband saved two kids' lives that almost drowned. It just kind of, no. <laughs> I feel like I was meant to be here for so many reasons. It fulfilled me as a human, as a passionate sports person, and someone who wants to be surrounded by a green world and also as a professional. So it just basically accomplishes all my needs. My husband and I are exploring what state to potentially move to outside of California. I think Hawaii might top the list now. <laughs> so. I think so, especially with your amazing podcast. You can do that from anywhere. And there's no reason not to love here. They say that the islands either embrace you or <laughs> spit you out. <laughs> so if you come in with a sense of equality for all, of appreciating all cultures and races and ethnic groups and languages, then you're really going to be taken in by this multicultural community. And if you don't, you'll be spit out. Everything you stand for seems amazing. So, Well, thank you. Certainly now in this pandemic that's going on for month seven, month eight, there's elevated levels of stress and anxiety. And you are literally in the thick of it in the ER, surrounded by this pandemic. How do you address increases in anxiety across the board. Like you're in Hawaii, which probably helps just with this sheer beauty around. But do you have any tips for our listeners who are thinking about the pandemic, who are thinking about working, who are thinking about balancing everything? And on top of this election that's coming up, that's stressing a lot of people out. I'm so glad you asked me this. I can't believe I actually forgot about COVID for an hour. Thank you. I want to thank you for letting <laughs> forget about COVID. The first three weeks when it came out, I was horrified. I've lived through Ebola. I was a a practicing attending during Ebola and we were donning on and off the suits. And I thought, I am a three-year-old. I don't want to don and off in Ebola suit. This is horrible. Being a frontline healthcare worker, you think you're going to help save others, but you don't think one of the people you're going to have to help save is yourself. And that's frightening. 7,000 healthcare workers have died across the globe trying to save other people. And I think that's a really important message to beat into people's heads is that these are people who are wearing the appropriate PPE, they're wearing N95. So if we can get it, wearing proper protection, it's just so overwhelming for your system if you're not wearing it. I think really what I've tried to highlight on my Dr. Candy survival Instagram page is following science. I feel like people are not following science anymore. The politicians aren't listening to their top scientists like Dr. Fauci. He's being scapegoat for all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories of making money off of vaccines. Like this is just mind blowing to me. 
where the dark side of social media has gone. I honestly wish that a lot more physicians and scientists would start taking over Instagram and people like yourself are trying to spread the truth because I think it's just overwhelmed by bad information. And so I think that's one of the most important messages that I want to get across is that masking is important, hand hygiene is important, that the WHO cares about you, they want you to be safe, it's not a corrupt organization. The CDC is not a corrupt organization, they study viruses and bacteria. There's an amazing Dr. Gandhi who has a hypothesis, which is true, I believe, of all viruses, that it's about the viral load. It's about how many viruses enter through these three holes. So the less viruses you get through these three holes, the less sickness you're going to have. So if I wear my N95 when I see a patient with coronavirus, less particles, less illness. If I don't and I'm just walking around, hanging out at a political rally, talking without a mask on, I'm going to get a lot of viruses in these three holes and I'm going to get really sick and possibly die. But I just really want to promote science and education and the truth and taking care of yourself and that masks protect you. It's just not about protecting other people. It's really protects you from getting sick. And that's my mask message. That's what I stand by. And I hope everyone just finds a cute mask and puts it on and wears it like a condom because a coronavirus is the STD of America right now. And we need to keep it out of this whole, that's my, <laughs> Love that's that my message. Little- Thank you. And that's a good, message for me to keep finding doctors to share that message. So I think that's important. Yes, please. Oh, Dr. Gandhi is amazing. I think I just watched her on Dog, who's one of my favorite. He's funny. He's funny and he's smart and he interviews people and it's enjoyable to watch him. Oh, cool. I'll look him up. Yeah. Look up this woman, Dr. Gandhi. She's the one talking about this hypothesis of viral load. I want to ask you my typical questions that I ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? I would say my father, first and foremost, just because he came from nothing. He was an immigrant child. He came from a poor family. He basically put himself through high school. He slept in his car. He put himself through college, medical school. He really wanted to give back to the community from his humanitarian roots, and he came from nothing. I do hope to write a book about him someday. And then after that, going into his profession, just really all the women that were my mentors in medical school and had come before me and really were in an all boys club of medicine and had to fight for equality as female physicians, which was very difficult. Even I was one of two residents in the class of 18. So I felt that struggle. I can't imagine what it was like for the first timers and the RBGs of law, the glorious items of the women's movement. Those women are just super inspiring to me. Michelle Obama's amazing inspiration for me as well. Couldn't agree more. And the same line, did you have a mentor or role model outside of those inspirational people who really helped guide you outside of your dad and those inspirational figures? My mom and my older sister really helped guide my education, my emotions, my identity as a woman. Those are two powerful people in my life, personally. And then I just looked for people who had a fun life and really enjoyed it and took advantage and were passionate about what they did. I love Izzy Tahani, because she developed Surf Diva Camp. And honestly, without her and having that space to really enjoy the outside world outside of my profession, I think I would have stopped being a physician. I was really burnt out. So I love women like her who are just passionate about their lives and about surfing and really make a difference in the world for other people. My friend Chris Promacio, who runs International Surf Therapy Organization and basically brings surfing to kids that might be challenged, disabled, veterans, she also brings surfing too. So I just 
there's so many role models. I just can't. And with now with the internet, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed with role models. I don't even know who to pay attention to on a daily basis. <laughs> well, you're, I'm sure, at the top of most people's list at this point. What are you most proud of so far? I have to say, as a physician, would be saving the woman's life in the middle of the ocean. I would have to say that was definitely the pinnacle. And then I'm proud now to be this global hero, this mentor to all these medical students and residents that are reaching out to me. Think of that myself that way because I've always struggled. I think I struggled a little bit in college. I struggled in residency. I never thought I was the top of the class. I always had to work really hard for eating. These women say, you're amazing. We want to be like you. Really, really brings my confidence to a new level I've never experienced before. I definitely want to thank all those people, residents, men and women who reached out to me to let me know they thought I was amazing because that has been incredible. Along those lines, I asked all my guests to discuss some of their biggest struggles, failures and moments of adversity. What is your biggest or most impactful growth moment that you can share? I would say when I was at Wellesley College, and I hate to say this about Wellesley, please forgive me my alma mater, but my college counselor told me that my GPA was too low. I would never get into medical school. And she told me to quit soccer. So I went to my soccer coach. This is my senior year in college. I'd been playing for four years and I was super average at that. That's a whole nother average story. <laughs> I was on the bench most of the time, but I said to my soccer coach, I'm quitting. I want to go to medical school. And my college counselor just told me I'm not going to get in. So I need to, I'm here with you to quit. And she said, well, you're never going to get into medical school because they don't want quitters. <laughs> so I'm like in this catch 22 where I'm a quitter no matter what I do. I'm never getting in. So I really took that to heart and I thought, honestly, it pissed me off. I'm here at like one of the best women's colleges in the country and this is your advice, please. So it actually inspired me to work harder to get in. It took me four years to get in, but this girl got in and I also applied to medical school twice. I think that was an embarrassing fact for me to share with people, but if you want to be bad enough, you do it twice or three times. And I did get into a baccalaureate program in Haifa that eventually you'd go to Haifa, Israel. So I went to New York for a year and I basically did the first year of medical school under the guise of a Bachelor of Arts. <laughs> like I said, under the guise of a Bachelor of Arts, but you're doing the first year of medical school and then you apply. And I applied to many universities again for medical school and I was accepted at USC. And so I was not a first time entrance to a medical school. And then when I got to medical school, I wasn't the brightest in the class. I worked very hard. I studied extremely hard. I would cry myself to sleep most nights trying to get through all the reading. And then in residency too, I was with 18 brilliant doctors at USC at one of the best emergency medicine programs in the country. And my best friend was AOA, which was the top of the class. We joke that I was OAO, <laughs> which doesn't even actually exist. <laughs> I was an AOA. So I have to say to all the women, all the physicians, all the humans out there that if you want to be bad enough, you just keep going and you don't take no for an answer and you just try again till you get what you want. I love that. That's the persistence. what I did. I love it. Persistence. It is. It's about persistence. Growth from failure. Love your title. <laughs> Thank you. What's next for Dr. Candice Myrie? Well, I do love my platform coming from a women's studies background. I'm thrilled with my platform that I've been put on this platform to cancel sexism in 2020. And I'm taking it to heart. And I've been speaking out to a lot of different people who are also involved in canceling sexism in 2020 and other leaders and American Medical Women's Association. I'm going to talk with them. I have a speaking engagement coming up soon. And I've talked to a lot of other women as well. And 
with my colleagues, I thought, well, what can I do to really make this happen? It's great to talk about cancer and sexism, but what can we do to help the other women, healthcare workers who might be experiencing this? So I came up with a Facebook page that's called hashtag med bikini. You can go there, answer a few questions about what profession you are in and what you're planning on doing with the site. And then for anyone who has any sexist behaviors or experiencing it work, they can go there, ask for advice, share their story, look for other people, maybe the same difficulties at that institution and basically join forces to figure out the best solution. So I really wanted to make something tangible that people could do instead of just complain about it. And so that's one thing I've done. And then just keep speaking out, educating other people about sexism still exist. And then also joining forces with other areas that are also important, racism, cultural discrimination, ethnicity, religious discrimination. It's all important. We're all humans. We're all pink on the inside, my new favorite song. And there's a lot of silliness out there. So I think those are basically my goals. And then also I am writing a book called Sex, Surf, Suture, Scars. And I was scared to write it before because I didn't want to be seen as Dr. Bikini. But I'm okay to talk about my personal life now. I don't feel like I'm going to lose my job if I publish a book that has a sex scene in it or talks poorly about some disparaging time in my life. So yeah, those are my goals for the next year. And hopefully I'll get them done. We'll see. Well, I love that. Well, I can't wait to read the book. Dr. Myrie, a big mahalo to you. And thank you so much for just sharing your story and sharing your Hana. Yes, my favorite expression now, because I'm from California, is to say mucho mahalo. <laughs> my Spanish root. So mucho mahalo to you. And thank you so much. I thank you. love talking to you and can't wait to hear your other podcasts and learn a lot from other people you interview. 